Hey everybody, the November 2023 Roundup is brought to you by Arcane Wonders and their new game, Age of Wonders Planetfall, which is a very cool, fast-playing, card-drafting engine-building game where every round we're coming to a new planet that we are trying to conquer by grabbing cards. And the tricky thing is, on each planet, each player is only going to get to grab two cards. And it's always going to be a tough choice of to what to sacrifice and what to focus on because of big in-game objectives that everybody can be chasing after throughout the game. The other tricky thing is, depending on which card you grab, that could put you earlier or later in turn order for subsequent rounds. And that can add an extra level of complexity to the decision making as well. Now, this is a pretty smooth, fast playing game. It's almost a gateway plus and based on a very popular video game franchise. And if you'd like to know more about it, Shay has done a run through. There's going to be a link for that down below and also a link uh, to the publisher's page if you'd like to know more about this month's sponsor, Age of Wonders Planetfall. And now, let's get on with the show. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Which means, folks, I'm going to be telling you all about the games that Jen and I played over the last few weeks. Although, you may notice there's a couple things different this month in the uh, roundup. First of all, my apologies. This is coming to you, I think, over a week late. In case you didn't know, my wife and I are in the middle of an epic multi-month road trip in the RV right there, heading all the way down to the southern tip of Baja, Mexico, and then heading all the way back up. And uh, yeah, that's the other thing you may notice difference. Here I am. I'm not sitting at a dinette or a desk or in front of a bunch of games. I am just looking out right behind you is the beautiful Sea of Cortez. And uh, to the south of me is San Felipe which uh, Jen and I might head into tomorrow to get some tacos. We will see. But we're just basically boondocking out here in the wild, completely off-grid. Uh, just off there, you can't see. There's a whole bunch of solar panels that are powering this entire endeavor. And if I've got everything set up right, folks, I should be able to do a countdown uh, thanks to Starlink um, getting me access to the Internet out here in the middle of nowhere. Right. Uh, fingers crossed. Everything works out okay. But uh, enough of the preamble, folks. You want to hear about games? I'm going to tell you about games, starting with number 17. 17 games we played over the last five weeks or so. And the number 17, where are you, is Last Light. And I know you may not expect that for me to be playing a 4X game all about trying to, um, what do you call it? explore, expand, exploit, and exterminate throughout the galaxy. But hey, when you're on the road, all kinds of crazy things happen, folks. And I did get a chance to play a game. And I have to admit, even though I'm not really interested in the subject matter, this is definitely 100% not a game for me. I really wanted to give it a try because it seems like it had a lot of really cool features, the way most of the game happens simultaneously. So you can get an epic Twilight Struggle style experience, uh, or not Twilight Struggle, Twilight Imperium experience in just over an hour is what is promised on the tin. Now, I wouldn't say that's possible. I I was, I think, of the uh, four-player game we played, I was the only new player, and uh, I was fairly quick. I was most of the time quicker than everybody else, and it still took us closer to two hours to play all the way through, but in spite of that, it was a very impressive design. And um, I gotta say, let's see, I should probably put some pictures on the screen here, shouldn't I? I am clearly prepared for what's going on here. Let's see, there we are. So there's a lot of really cool things about it. Uh, first of all, just the production values are amazing. All these cool little 3D planets. And the fact is, uh, every once in a while, the board actually rotates. So, hey, if you can't reach the other side of the galaxy to go conquer that planet you want, wait long enough it'll come to you. That's actually really cool. The presentation of this game is fantastic. And the gameplay is really sharp too. Most of it is simultaneous action selection. We all have a hand of the same types of cards. We all secretly pick and reveal one card simultaneously. And most of the time we can resolve things simultaneously as well. 
Good job, Roy. Well designed. Now, but that's not always the case. There's two actions where you do have to take turns resolving things. One is if combat happens or moving ships around, because of course a big part of this game is area control. Me moving my ships in to you know mess with you and what you've got going on. Um, or you moving in to mess in. And you know, that does have to be resolved. And the other one, there is a trade action where Strictly speaking, you could do it all simultaneously, but we found that didn't work because one of the things that happens is when I trade, I ultimately have to pick somebody else around the table to get some free goodies, which I really appreciated. There's a lot I like here, folks. I really do like the interesting take on Concordia-style um, card play because that's really what drives this game is um, you know everybody's going to play cards and eventually, oh, i got to play the card that lets me recall all my cards. But the interesting thing about this game is the refresh card, I think it's called. It You don't get to recall your cards until everybody... No, 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 no. You, when you play the recall card, you get to recall all your cards, right? That's cool. Um, but you don't get to recall the refresh card itself. It stays out there. It's not until everybody has played their refresh card and gotten all their cards back that there will be a galaxy-wide event that, one, lets you get your recall, your refresh card back, um, and it makes the galaxy spin and other stuff happens as well if you have, you know, majority in the center of the galaxy and whatnot on the dwarf star. Um, you know, there's really not much for me to talk about this. This game is full of the kind of stuff you would expect. You know, tech trees to level up and make your ships more powerful. A, you know, an economy game where you're trying to harvest resources from the planets you've conquered to be able to make more ships to spread out and conquer more planets and blow everybody else up. <clears throat> and... Yeah, I mean, this was never a game that was going to be for me, but I'm really glad I got to see it anyway because I did appreciate how well the mechanisms work. It doesn't quite seem like you could get it done in an hour, maybe if you're real experts or if you're playing with Roy, the designer himself. But even still... I enjoyed it. I just wish. It was so ridiculous. There's a ton of technology cards that do a bunch of things, and every time I would go for technology, every single tech card I would get would just be more ways to destroy each other or incentivizing me to blow everybody else up. While everybody else around the table just constantly kept getting peaceful cards that were all about increasing their you know, economic engine and all kinds of stuff. I'm like, why can't I get any of those cards? Why, Roy, do you want to make me destroy everybody? And I did my best to destroy everybody. I didn't win, but I did pretty well for my first game. And, um, you know, obviously not my cup of tea, so it comes in at the bottom of the list, but there's no denying that Last Light is a really impressive accomplishment. And if you like 4X games and you want to play uh, much quicker than what you would normally get for these kind of spacefaring civilization conquest games, uh, it is well worth checking out. Number 17 on the list, Last Light. Okay. Now, let's move on to number 16 on the list. If this will actually work, will it? I'm trying to close this. There we go. Number 16, High Society. Uh, now, this is a game I've wanted to play for a long time. It's one of designer Reiner Knizia's all-time well-loved auction games. He used to do a ton of auction games back over a decade ago, and I played most of them. This is one of the few I haven't played for sale. I played Raw. I think I still have to play the, the one about art, if I recall correctly, but I've now played High Society, and I gotta say, folks, it's my least favorite of the Reiner Knizia, um, you know, auction games. And, you know, I, I got a chance to play because we were staying with some friends in San Diego. They had a copy, so we were able to play a four-player game because it obviously does not work for two players. But, uh, I mean, it's got this really wonderful, gorgeous new version. Where are the pictures? Where are the pictures? This new version, for, is it 25th Century Games, I think, has brought out this new one? Oh, let's just see. I, one problem with filming in the bright sunlight like this, I can barely see what's on my screen. I can barely make out anything. But okay, I think you're looking at the, the new card art for the latest version. So, why didn't I like it? Well, it's a really sharp auction game, and it does some fun stuff. It has a couple of twists. One is, you know, we have a handful of money cards. Everybody has the same cards, and you spend those in round-robin auctions to bid for really extravagant, rich lifestyle-type stuff. You know, going on trips, going to theater, all that kind 
line of business. Um, and you bid, bid, bid until everybody passes. Here's the trick, though. You want to get the valuable things that will score you points at the end of the game, but you don't want to bid high because of everybody who plays. Whoever ends up with the least money in hand at the end of the game instantly loses because all the other players look down on them because they're too poor. I like that thematically, and I think that's a really, really cool idea. The other twist is most of the time you're bidding, trying to bid high to get these really valuable things that are valued 1 to 10, which are basically victory points, or things that will double your value of cards or all kinds of things. But occasionally cards will come out that you bid to avoid, like um, being gauche or passe is one of the cards I remember. And so everybody bids um, until somebody doesn't want to bid any higher. They avoid um, taking the card. Oh, wait, now how did it work? Well, basically, um, you end up spending a lot of money to not take this terrible tragedy, or you save money, and then you've got something that will cut your score in half or whatnot. But hey, it was worth cutting your score in half rather than spending so much money to avoid it that you'll lose outright. So these are really cool ideas, these two interesting twists to auctioning, and I like them in theory. But in practice, I had one problem with the game. This whole idea of making sure you don't spend the most money meant I spent the entire game keeping track of how much money everybody else had spent around the table. All right, um, Nancy, she's up. She's like 55. Jen's only played 15. Drake's played 20. I've played 36. Right. And I was constantly doing that. And I found it to be really annoying because bringing a memory element into gameplay just, I just can't stand it. But I really felt like it was essential to do this to avoid having such a calamitous, just straight out lose. And um, so it really kind of brought the game down for me. And I was surprised to find out after we finished playing, nobody else was doing it. And I can certainly say that is the way to play. But here's the deal, folks. If you are playing with this game with somebody who is remembering how much everybody spent and you're not, chances are they're going to win because they can just make more informed bids than you can. So everybody has to kind of enter into this agreement that nobody will actually try to remember how much money they've spent or everybody's trying to do it. Not for me, which is why, as beautiful and brilliant as it is, the memory element really drug high society down for me. Honestly, I'd rather everybody just have on display how much money they've still got, and everybody's just making those kinds of decisions right from the get-go and pushing your luck. But anyway, uh, that's why it didn't work for me, number 16. Okay. Now, let's go on to number 15 on the list. Clever forever, or um, as it's also known, twice as clever. Now, this could also be called Gone Shown Clever 2. And in fact, I've already years ago played Gone Shown Clever, and a few years after that, I played Gone Shown Clever 3. So to date, Jen and I never played 2 and 4. And here's the deal, folks. I played a lot of Gone Shown Clever 2, also, uh, you know, or twice as clever, and um, Gone Shown Clever 4. Or wait, no, this one, oh, no, no, this is Clever Forever or, oh, I cannot remember. What is your German name? Uh, I don't know. I don't care. It has all kinds of different names, depending. Um, Clever Forever is the fourth Gone Shown Clever game, and it's number 15. And number 14 on the list is Doppelit So Clever or Twice as Clever. Right. I don't know. Maybe they've... I, I, it's, I cannot keep track of all. Why can't this be called Gone Shown Clever 1, 2, 3, and 4? That would make things a lot simpler. But anyway, regardless... Honestly, folks, I think I have played enough Gone Shown Clever now for the rest of my life. Yes, Wolfgang Warsh's Roll and Write Varsh's continues to be a brilliant uh, design, and it's really amazing to me how he keeps coming up with new ways to um, you know advance this really simple trick of hey, I roll some dice. Uh, whenever I'm going to take, whenever I take a die, one of two things happens. I end up giving it to everybody else around the table, or I keep it so I can roll it again in the future. And this push your luck draft is just brilliant. It always has been. I wish I could see it in a game other than the Gonzes. Because here's my problem. As always, I hate the fact that um, the game is completely abstract, and it really just feels like. Uh, an exercise in number crunching to me because I'm not actually achieving anything other than scoring points. I have heard tell that the original Gone Shown Clever, when it was originally brought to Schmidt Spiele, oh, and I should show pictures of all this, shouldn't I, folks? Sorry. Uh, again, I'm forgetting, I can't see my screen. I forget to do the normal stuff of a roundup. Anyway, um, you know, but really, what, what, what's there to see in this game? It's pretty simple. It's a roll and write with some colorful dice. 
Um, anyway, I've heard tell that when Wolfgang Varsh originally brought this uh, to the publisher, that he had a farming theme where every different colored scoring type would actually, uh, you know, correlate to different types of livestock or different crops or whatever. I wish that was still the case. I wish I was playing a farming game because I do think the mechanisms of the game are great. But as a pure abstract, I just can't bring myself to be engaged or excited about what is happening. And so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, everybody else around the table loved it. And I appreciated the brilliance of the design. But again, I just can't really get myself involved in abstract. But You'll may have noticed I, um, you know, uh, Gons Floor and Gons Two. I put them right next to each other on the countdown. I think Gons Two uh, is the better of the designs because I really did like the new feature it had of being able to claw dice back. I thought that was probably the coolest new feature the Gons Shown Clever has ever gotten. Every new one gets a different twist. You know, the one in Gons Four was really just kind of oh, increase or decrease a value by one. Yeah, that's fine. Seen that a million times, but twice as clever I think is probably the best of all the Gonzes now that I've played all four, but still, they're not for me, which is why they come in uh, where they do on the list. Okay, now let's move on to a big surprise, folks. Number 13 on the list this month is Cthulhu Death May Die. Yes, I know. I mean, why would I play this game? It is the epitome of, you know, Heavily thematic, you know, very luck swingy. Pay more attention to the narrative than you do to the gameplay. Ameritrash style gaming, definitely not my cup of tea. But hey, when in Rome, do as the Romans. I was visiting some folks who love this kind of stuff and um, who had maybe some of the most beautifully painted miniatures I'd ever seen. Um, Drake does an amazing job. Drake. Again, I gotta say how beautiful they were, and so I wanted to give it. I mean, I'm, I'm up for trying anything, even if I know I'm not gonna like it. And I do have to say, I liked this a lot more than I thought I was going to. It is a cooperative game about trying to stop the, uh, you know, the evil spread of Cthulhu. And uh, man, can we just have a nice big picture of the game setup? Did I already have one? All right, that'll do. It doesn't come with beautiful paint miniatures, but from what I can see, these look kind of almost as nice as uh, Drake's paint miniatures. But anyway, the game comes with several different, I think it's like six different missions. We're going to play cooperatively, uh, you know, and it's risk management stuff, right? You're running around, fighting fires, trying to solve some big objective, and, um, you know, pandemic style. But unlike Pandemic, rolling tons of dice. Every time you need to do anything, you got to roll a lot of dice. And I got to say, I really kind of got burned out on it. Even though, you know, the gameplay was sharp and fun and fast. The narrative was compelling. Of course, it was more compelling than just the um, the implicit narrative of, you know, what uh, Eric Lang, you know, and the design team had laid out for me was these stories that just grow naturally out of the choices we make. Of course, in the mission we played, I had to make a uh, you know, I, I faced off against the impossible knowing I was going to die, but wearing it down enough so that, um, you know, in a couple rounds later, everybody else could finish it off. Uh, you know, we all like split up and, you know, came together. It all works great. It's fun. It's smooth. It's fast. And oh my gosh, it has so much dice rolling. Anytime you want to do anything in this game, you got to roll dice. And it has a fair amount of, you know, dice mitigation. I thought that was really nicely done. Again, um, you know, if I liked this kind of thing, I would rate it much, much higher. Um, but I'd rather play, you know, a regular pandemic style, more Eurocentric, uh, you know, co-op game. But still, I will not deny at all that I enjoyed. And you know what? If I had the opportunity, I'd probably go back. I'd probably play a couple of the other missions because you, 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 you Rob Davio and Eric Lang, you done good. Uh, Cthulhu Death May Die, even though I shouldn't have liked it at all. In spite of it all, I enjoyed it, and it came in at number 13. Okay, now let's move on to... Everything's still recording, right? I think so. Let's move on to number uh, 12 on the list, I think. Is this right? Such a dark screen? Yep, here we go. Bazaars of Ubar. I was very excited to try this out because I've been a big fan of designer Tim Armstrong ever since I played Orbis. And I played several of his other games, and this is his latest game that came out from Gray Fox. And I was really excited about this one because it replicates, or reinvents, I should say, a lot of the core ideas of one of my favorite tiling games of all time, uh, Glenmore. 
And uh, what this ultimately turned out to be is Glenmore with some really, really cool new ideas. It still has the time track, but the way you um, have to spend time and to grab the tiles you want is very, very clever. Um, and the thing is, you still grab a tile, you add it to your area, but unlike Glenmore, where you activate that tile and everything around it, here you activate that tile and everything it's pointing to, because every tile has uh, arrows that represent prevailing winds. So you activate everything to the right of the tile, or only the thing directly below the tile. And I thought that was really cool. I really liked it a lot. And you know, the, and, you know, and then uh, what you're trying to do is gather resources, convert them into other resources, so you can sell them for points um, as the time track uh, moves forward, and we get closer and closer to heading into various um, seaports. Because this is a, you know, a um, what do you call it, a steampunky style setting. I liked everything about it. I thought it all worked beautifully, and my only problem, because the gameplay is stellar, this literally improves on some of the ideas of Glenmore, and I do not say that lightly because Glenmore is one of the all-time greats. The reason it comes in at number 12 for me is I only have one complaint. This is a gateway game. All of the powers of all the tiles you can grab are, for the most part, very simple. Convert X to Y, convert Y to Z, um, you know, type stuff. And I really wish there could have been some more cool, advanced stuff. Man, if this game ever gets an expansion and brings in some more complex, heavy, crunchy powers on the tiles, I will be there. But as it is, I think this is a great next step. If you've got people in your life who really liked Carcassonne, and they're ready for something new, you could show them this and they'd be blown away uh, and have a really, really great time. And so that's really the only thing that keeps it from coming in higher. Number 12 on the list, Bazaars of Ubar. Okay, now let's move on to number 11, Chroma Mix. This game, first of all, I got to say I liked it, but my wife, Jen, loved it. I think it was in her top four favorite games of the month. She really liked this a lot. Maybe her top five. Um, if you want to know more about that, folks, you can always check out the uh, latest Jen Jogs, which is available for backers of the show. But anyway, this is a uh, very simple... I want to say deck builder, but you never have a deck of cards. You just have a hand of cards. So it's a hand builder where on your turn, you've got a, a, a set of cards that represents the uh, colors of CMYK printing because apparently we're, we're literally inkjet printers in this game trying to print out stuff and mixing and matching inks um, because on your turn, most of the time, you're going to play a card for your hand that represents a color and that's going to trigger some type of special power. Sometimes they're instants and then they're done. Other times you do them and then they um, stay out there and give you an ongoing power. But often, instead of playing a card, you want to um, get rid of a card, get rid of two cards to mix those colors to jump up to the next level of card, you know, in a deck building style thing. So you got to give up two cards to get a new card. And that's really interesting. This deck building game where you only start out with, I think it was seven cards, maybe six cards in hand. And every time you get a card, you're losing two. So a big part of what you're trying to do is use the powers of the cards to harvest more cards so you can stay ahead. Um, so you can get a bigger and bigger hand of cards. Um, as you work your way up the, uh, the tech tree of colors to get to the bigger, rarer colors that are tougher to get that require, hey, starting out, um, you know, giving up easy cards to get medium cards, then giving up medium cards to get really powerful cards, but then giving up those powerful cards to get in-game scoring cards. Because the game, every time you play, has four different ways you can end. Three set ways, and one that is an optional one that um, you know, is different every time you play. And um, um, you know, at the beginning of the game, nobody can win the game until they've actually sacrificed enough cards to make it to the top and get one of those big um, ending games. And then you're everybody. As soon as everybody, as soon as somebody grabs one of those, everybody's racing. By the way, I don't know if you can hear it, folks. There's an ATV over there to the side. I think they're pretty far away. But regardless, heck, you might see them zip by in the background before too long. Ah, oh, when we got here this morning, there was no one. But now people are starting to show up because this is an awesome. Like I said, the beach is just right over there. Anyway, though, I'm going to continue. Sorry. I liked it quite a bit. It is very abstract. There's a little bit of theme. I do like the idea of mixing colors to get better colors, each of them having you know, different special powers and whatnot, and every time you're playing, chasing after potentially different in-game scoring. Jen loved it. Now, this could be in, in part because she is, uh, you know, in her former life, she was a professional uh, graphic designer, and she was able to say, yeah, these colors mix that way and all that, so I think the theme really brought to life for her more. Honestly, that's why I was excited to try it, because I knew she'd love it so much. I liked it, too. Again, 
you know, it's a little abstract. I wouldn't mind if there was some, if we were dr- building something, if this were set in Renaissance Italy or the future or something. But I can't complain uh, because it is charming and fast playing and sharp, clever. Number 11 of the month, Chroma Mix. All right, now let's go on to number 10 of the month, Arcana Rising. This is another game from designer Tim Armstrong. Again, I'm a huge fan of this designer. And it's weird, I had kind of passed over this one because when it originally came out from Gray Fox Games, I'd heard it had some take that in there, but I've actually played this game a few times now, and I can say it does not seem to. I haven't seen any of it. Uh, this is a, what do you call it, a closed hand drafting card game along the lines of, you know, Sushi Go, or Seven Wonders, and where you have a hand of cards, you're going to pick one for yourself, hand the rest over. Once everybody reveals what they do, you're either going to tuck it into your board to uh, power up spells that you can cast later on, or you're going to sacrifice it to cast spells that you want to cast. And the spells you can cast on any given turn are based on a variable setup phases of the moon that says, hey, in the first round, you can do the charms and the gold. In the second round, you can do the herbs and the potions. And so, okay, I know I just want to level this potion up a little bit more before we get to the fourth round when I can actually cast the potions. But am I going to sacrifice this card? This would be a really good card for me to have. But I'm not even in herbs. Am I going to try and focus on it anyway? It was sharp, it's fast, it's a lot of fun, and I gotta say, folks, considering the fact um, that it plays up to six, and it's got this really excellent um, engine building element to it, because you're playing all these, you've got five different engines you're trying to develop, and at any given time, on a turn, you could act, you could choose to sacrifice a card to activate two of your five engines. Although the cool thing is, at the end of a round, after everybody's gone through all their cards, you have the option to activate every one of your engines, but only the most recently played card. So that's a really fun combo-y element, too. This game is very, very sharp, and um, honestly, I've only gotten to play it at high player counts. I'm looking forward to play it at a lower player count game so that I have a little bit more control over the cards because, hey, if it's just me and you, I've got six cards, I keep one, I hand you five, I know you're going to hand four of those back. I I could do a lot more long-term planning. That's kind of what Jen and I are used to playing games like Seven Wonders. Here, I've only played higher player count games where, you know, you never know what you're going to get. And um, so it feels like it might be a little bit more luck of the draw. Um, But even still, it plays incredibly fast. So this is a phenomenal, you know, not quite midweight, but not lightweight either. Kind of, I would actually say, I would say it's a little bit heavier, a little bit crunchier than um, Seven Wonders. But it fills that same niche, and I think it's really, really sharp. Well worth checking out. That is number 10 of the month. Arcana Rising. All right, now let's move on to number nine of the month. If I can push the right button. Uh, All righty. Let's see. It's so bright. I can't see anything. There we go. Uh, Number nine of the month is... Pirates of Maracaibo. Now, this was one of my most anticipated games of the year, quite frankly, uh, because it is from Design Superstar... Uh, Alexander Fisher, probably my second highest rated designer of all time. And it is a sequel to my favorite Alexander Fisher game of all time, Maracaibo. Um, And this basically, uh, you know, I want to say it's, it is its own beast. It has a lot of the flavor of Maracaibo. It is a race against time. Everybody racing to move forward, uh, not around a rondelle this time, but instead a randomly generated board full of cards that is constantly shifting and updating. But we're still racing to get to Maracaibo as fast as we can because whoever gets there first, you know, pushes the agenda of the game, but also gets big, huge paydays. And you know, it's just full of you know um, Treasure Island style, um, you know, piratey Long John Silver piratey goodness, and uh, it's really sharp. Uh, you know, all the leveling up you can do of your ship, all the, you know, constantly fluctuating value of the uh, the gems and rubies and whatnot that you can collect. Everything about it works fantastically. Uh, you know, it's a really worthwhile sequel. If you want to get a game of Maracaibo in, but you want it in half the time, that's what this is going to give you. And I think that's really, really great. So why didn't it come in higher? Well, because there's one thing. It introduced dice, uh, a lot of dice, and honestly, I could have done without them. Uh, it's a clever system for it. If you want to know more about it, I've actually filmed a run through. You can go watch my run through, and I talk a bit more about why I didn't care for the dice. But really, bringing in dice that can be very swingy, even with all the planning in the world, they can still screw you over. You know, 
it's okay. Uh, my wife didn't mind at all. I would have liked to. I just wish the dice weren't there. This could have been a top 10 of the year, quite frankly, because everything else about this game, the Maracaiboiness of it is fantastic. But And if you like rolling dice, hey, so much the better. That's what keeps it at, coming in at number nine of the month. The Pirates of Maracaibo. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alrighty, then let's move on to number eight, Great Western Trail, New Zealand. Now, I'm actually going to be filming a run through of this probably sometime in the next couple of weeks. So you'll hopefully see me actually demonstrating the gameplay of this before Christmas, uh, if all goes to plan. Although you never know what's going to happen when you're living life on the road these days like I am. Anyway, though, this is the third and I believe final in the Great Western Trail trilogy. And I'll just come right out and say it right now, folks. As far as I'm concerned, it's the best. Uh, it does all the, you know, it, it has some small tweaks to Great Western Trail. It has some big, huge swing changes as well. Uh, none bigger than the fact that deck building is a thing now. Deck building was always kind of Great Western Trail, but now for the first time we can throw stuff other than livestock into our decks and the decks get much more interesting, much more engaging. That's a bigger, more robust element. There's also an extra map. Instead of just trying to work ourselves up the train track like we did in the original Great Western Trail, now we've got this huge board, which I guess is kind of similar to the original Great Western Trail Railways of the North expansion, which I never played. Uh, so I liked all that. I really liked the bigger focus on um deck building. Again, I'll talk more about this after I've actually done my full run-through of it. But for now, I'll just say that my same problem exists with Great Western Trail as a whole. The It's not take-thatedness, but so much of this game is anticipating where you think your opponents are going to go and then building your buildings there so that you can tax them once a go-around of the rondelle. I still just do not like it at all. Um, you know, and I, so I still, Alex, I mean, I could play this from Alexander Fister, or I could play the original Maracaibo, or even better, Cooperative Maracaibo with the Uprising expansion, and so that's where I'm always going to go. But for my money, if I'm going to play Great Western Trail with you and you've got all three to choose from, I am definitely going to choose this. Oh, I forgot. Shearing sheep. You have like an entirely different... Livestock is now multi-purpose cards. If, if you know, So deck building gets even better. Cool game. Lots of fun. As always, brilliant design. For me personally, just marred by the tiny bit of take that that I could do without. That is... What was it? Um, number eight, I believe. Great Western Trail. New Zealand. Okay, now let's move on to one I'm really excited about. Number seven on the list is Aqua Biodiversity in the Oceans. Okay, uh, this is a tile laying game, a multi-layered tile laying game uh, that is beautiful, gobsmackingly gorgeous art, as you would expect, from artist superstar Vincent Dutre. Um, you know, and what we're trying to do is Every round, we are going to grab a tile that represents an expanding uh, coral reef. And we're trying to lay... I mean, each one of these hexagon tiles has three different reef colors on it. And we're trying to lay the tile such that we can create a single hexagon all of one color. Because if we can do that, we could then grab a, uh, a small sea creature, you know, a... Uh, you know, uh, the, the clownfish, the starfish, you know, various and sundry things, and put them on that tile and score some points. But that's just the beginning because we're trying to get multiples of those small creatures next to each other on the level because then we can put a medium or a large sea creature on top of the small creatures and score more points. So, um, 
that's not all. Because I mentioned, if you can make a hex of all the same color, you get to put, like in this picture here, you made a red hex, you get to put a red crab there and get two points. Great. But if you can't do that, you could instead make a collection of red spaces that's bigger than three. If that's the case, it becomes a reef. And then all of a sudden, you want to surround that reef with all kinds of uh, sea life as well. And um, different sea life scores differently every time you play. Because there was a picture of it earlier. Let me see if I can find it. As part of setup, you put all these different um, scoring elements next to the different small creatures. So every time you play, the different small creatures are going to score in different ways. Sometimes they want to be next to reefs. Sometimes they want to be next to each other. Sometimes they want to be by themselves. So the game has a ton of replayability built in to an absolutely brilliant and surprisingly crunchy uh, tile drafting and then multi-triple layer tile laying game that, again, did I mention, is absolutely going to be one of the prettiest games you've played in years, quite frankly. How could I not fall in love with it? Jen really loved it, too. It comes in at number seven of the month from Aqua Biodiversity in the Oceans. Okay, now let's move on to number six, Tiny Epic Cthulhu, which is the latest in the Tiny Epic series. And right off the bat, I was so happy that Tiny Epic is returning to its cooperative roots. I mean, they've had a few cooperative games here. Most of the time, they're competitive. So if I can ever have a Tiny Epic cooperative experience from Gameland Games and Scott Alms, I'm there. And even if it is fighting the minions of Cthulhu. Although, honestly, can I just say... I am so happy to be fighting Cthulhu rather than worshiping Cthulhu. There's been such an uptick of, hey, we are the cultists trying to bring about the end of the world because we're all nihilist, because that's just cool to do these days. I still hold hope for humanity and our future, so I want to fight Cthulhu, and Tiny Epic uh, Cthulhu does a great job of that. This is a very pandemic-esque uh, um, you know, cooperative game where you're fighting fires all over the place, trying to spread the, uh, trying to fight the spread of madness, which represented by cool little tentacles, although my prototype, they're little cubes. By the way, I should say, if you watch my run-through, bear in mind, I was filming in my RV because we're on the road, and it came out much darker than it should. The game is actually brighter than my run-through would make you uh, believe. Go check out the Kickstarter page if you want to get a better idea of what it really looks like in real life. But anyway, so you're trying to stop the spread of madness, you're trying to stop the spread of zombies, shamblers, and you are trying to weaken the old one by deciphering pages of the Necronomicon. All cool, all thematic, and we're doing it through a mishmash of um, cool mechanisms. Very smart push your luck. Really um, fun, interesting bag building where we're trying to build the bag, but so is the bad guy at the same time. And it's all pulled together by a spinner. A spinner of madness. And for people who say, I will never touch this game because I'm vehemently opposed to the existence of spinners, all I can tell you is you are missing out because this game reinvents what it means to spin a spinner, and it's brilliant. Scott Alms always... Um, um, does either does good or great with the Tiny Epics. I think this is definitely at the higher end of the series. Again, maybe it's because it's co-op, and I love co-op play, um, and I very much enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, watch my run-through if you'd like to know more about number six of the month, Tiny Epic Cthulhu. Then let's go on to number five of the month, Firefighters on Duty. And I was so excited about this because this is a sequel to a game that I think is in my top 25 games of all time, Project Elite, which is a real-time cooperative game that's basically James Cameron's Aliens, the board game. And that's great, but it's always been a problem because my wife does not like slimy, gross, scary aliens or running around as a space marine shooting uh, space marine guns at them. So when I found out the, the gameplay of... Project Elite was getting, uh, uh, you know, converted into a modern-day setting of firefighters trying to save the people of a city, answer distress calls, stop the spread of fire. I'm like, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. And I was very excited, and it really didn't disappoint at all. It's sharp, it's fast, it really is its own beast. This is not just Project Real, uh, Project Elite rethemed, which is like a new skin. The, you know, they've radically changed the gameplay. Uh, for instance, um, when you're in the real time dice rolling portion. Hey, fly. Oh, the joys of filming outside. We've got some flies. Okay. Anyway, though, I think they feel my sweat. It is hot out here. What was I thinking? 
It's just trying to give you folks a different view. But anyway, regardless, um, we only roll two dice now instead of, I believe it was four in the original Project Elite. So we're rolling much faster, using the dice a lot faster. And the interesting thing is, unlike Project Elite, you were often rolling, 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 and every die result you got was dead. You just needed one. In this game, you're rolling two dice, but every die has a use. You don't always have time to think about it and use them smartly because of the time crunch, the time pressures, but I really appreciate it. I think that is a smart evolution. And the game comes with a bunch of different missions. Um, you know, I've only gotten to play one. And so I, this is a preliminary. I'm rating Project Elite higher so far, but that's because I played a lot of the final version of Project Elite. When I eventually get to play the final version of Firefighters on Duty, who knows? this might replace Project Elite and become a new top 25 game of all time for me. But for now, um, based on the prototype I played and the promise it's got, uh, number five of the month, is Firefighters on Duty. Then we go on to number four, folks, from my, one of my favorite designers of all time, Vladimir Sushi. It is Aldebaran Duel. Now, I've done a full run-through for this, as you can tell, because I've got an actual video of it to show you. Um, this is this is Vladimir Sushi, you know, um, uh, Pragakput, Regni, and... Um, oh, Shipyard, you know, some of my favorite designs of all time. This is him doing his take on Race for the Galaxy. And man, does he do a great job. It's a two-player only dueling game um, where we are drafting cards from a central draft with a smart, simple, fast, elegant drafting system. And then when we got cards in our hand, we're sacrificing some cards to be able to play other ones. And these cards give us special powers. They help us terraform planets to score points. And everything we're doing is try to progress up different tracks, including this cool two-axis track that represents our economy and our military. And I liked it a lot. This game's totally a keeper for me. But I was a little bit bummed to find out that Jen, she didn't like it as much as me because it is a duel. And the thing is, the, the two-axis track of every time I move up on my economy, I make you drop. Every time you improve your military, mine drops. And so for Jen, that was a little bit too in-your-face, a little bit too dually. I was pretty comfortable with it, but um, we both agreed the actual, it was incredibly satisfying drafting the cards, you know, risking, waiting for one to get cheaper so you could get it. Hopefully nobody, your opponent didn't take it. And, um, you know, the really tough choices of what to sacrifice to build what you want it's a brilliantly done little game. Fast player, definitely probably about a half an hour to 40 minutes. Two player only. And, although it does have a very good solo mode as well. Number four of the month, Aldebaran Duel. Then we go on, folks, to number three of the month, Arc Nova Marine Worlds. The first big expansion. There's been a couple of little things and player boards and whatnot, but this is a boxed expansion for Arc Nova, and it is game-changing in a really, really good way, and it makes me very, very happy. Uh, you know, Arc Nova's already, you know, a top 50 of all-time game for me and Jen, and, um, you know, I was really excited to see what this brings, and it brings several new things. You know, the biggest thing, arguably, is a ton of new cards. I think the deck has gotten like almost 30% bigger and it was already a big deck of unique cards, but all these really cool um, uh, sea life cards come into the game and to um, build them, you need new special enclosures. Let me see if I can find them. They kind of function like the enclosures. Was it the, uh, the lizard house and the uh, aviary? Why can I not find them? I could have sworn there was a picture showing these new enclosures. Come on, board game geek. Don't leave me hanging. I know I'm out in the middle of the desert, but I have Starlink. Okay, it's just not going to show me. Fine. Anyway, there's new... Oh, there they are, right there. Uh, there's these new enclosures you can build. Although, interestingly, you don't have to wait till you upgrade your build ability to build the new enclosures. You can build them right away to start getting access to all the cool new powers that are on the starfish. That's cool. The starfish and sharks and, you know, all that other stuff. That's nice, but that's not what makes this so special. The, uh, this is... For me, this is a must-have. I wouldn't play Arc Nova without this expansion going forward because it adds a couple of things. One is replacement command cards. You know a big part of the game is you got five command cards. You play one, it gets weak. You play other ones until it gets strong again. Now, every time you play as part of setup, each player is going to get two of their five command cards, have cool special powers that are hugely powerful. So satisfying to use. Makes the game a little bit crunchier than before, but definitely worth it. So I love that. 
But what I really love is there's a couple of new features that speed up the flow of cards. Uh, when cards, when C cards come out that have the wave icon on them, more of the cards go away. So we're constantly cycling through the main offer that much faster, which is awesome. Also, there's a new university type that we can... Um, Oh, partnership with? What's it called? I can't oh, associate with that um, lets us go digging for the specific types of cards we need. So these new things give you more control over the cards you are chasing after. And these are hugely welcome improvements for the game. And I would not want to play the game without them. My only complaint about this, the only thing that probably keeps this from being my number one thing of the month, quite frankly, is I wish, wish, wish that they had also, with this expansion, included... The equivalent of Terraforming Mars Prelude. Something that uh, cuts the length of the game in half. Because Ark Nova is already way too long for me and Jed. And now with the starting draft we have to do and the extra complexity that comes from these new command cards and stuff, the game has gotten even longer. And I need this game to get shorter. Jen played an almost five-hour game of this. And everybody who was playing had already played Ark Nova before. So, I mean, that's obviously an outlier, but... Ark Nova desperately, desperately needs a Terraforming Mars Prelude-style expansion, or just even a set of rules that we can download and apply so we can get a game done in half the time. Um, but, I mean, and I was hoping this would be here. It's not, so that knocks it down a couple of notches. But still, hey, folks, it's number three of the month, Ark Nova Marine Worlds. All righty, getting close, folks. Things are getting even better with number two of the month, Cascadia Landmarks. And I got to say, folks, I love Cascadia. I think it's great. I think, didn't it win the Spiel des Jahres? Deservedly so. Brilliant tile laying game. Love the entwined drafting. Always thought it was fantastic. But for me, I've seen some people saying Landmarks is, oh, it's kind of nice to have, but it's not that big a deal. I don't get that. I would never want to play Cascadia without Landmarks again. It adds several new things, you know, new ways to score animals, you know, the kind of stuff. It adds components so you can actually increase the player count, which honestly I don't care about at all, uh, because for me it's always best to play these games at lower player counts. But what's most important, the original Cascadia, every time you set up to play, each of the five animal types gets a randomly chosen um, scoring card, and it's this combination of the way these score that's going to mix things up every time you play. Well, we get a bunch of new ones for animals, but more importantly, we now also get scoring cards for the terrain as well. And that is huge. That so elevates the depth and complexity and crunchiness of this game to really upper echelon. I think this expansion bumped this up like 20 points in my overall ranking of all games. Um, you know, I brought it from you know like my top 50 games into my top or 120 games into my top 50, something like that. And um, it's awesome. Again, the only reason I would ever play Cascadia without this is if I'm introducing it to new players. Um, but otherwise, it so elevates the game. I think my wife feels the same way. We would never play without it. It's one of those absolute game changers in the best way expansions that I love to see. Number two of the month, Cascadia Landmarks. And folks, what is number one? I'm glad you asked. Age of Civilization. Oh my gosh, this game came out of nowhere. And here's the deal. This game was published in 2019 uh, from a, a little publisher, Ice Games, from a very um, you know low-key designer I don't really haven't heard of much, Jeffrey CCH. Here's the deal, folks. Having now played this game retroactively, it makes it into my top 10 games of the year for 2019. Gameland Games, the makers of the Tiny Epic series, I know the whole point of Tiny Epic is to always have games published by or you know designed by Scott Alms. If you ever decide to break that rule, please contact these developers because this is the ultimate example of Tiny Epic Civilization. It's not called that, but it might as well be, and it is brilliant. I have to get a copy of this for myself now because this captures all the feels of a big epic civilization, a through the ages, a nation's you know um, civilization style game, but it's done in like a half an hour or you know less than an hour, no matter the player count. It's a very fun mix of worker placement and card drafting and civilization building and it's just 
phenomenal. This game gets so much done in such a tiny footprint. It plays so fast. It is so tension-filled, but it's still got all the great stuff you want to see. Tech trees, we got them. Changing civilizations as we go through the ages, we got them. Special powers, wonders with different ways to score points at the end of the game. Um, we got them, we got them, we got them, and I absolutely love it. Let's see if I can find a picture of it just set up. All right, so this uh, the main game is set up where there are, if I recall correctly, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's either seven or eight core actions. Every time you play, you're going to put them out randomly. And that is going to be, at the beginning of the game, you have access to the first three cards. Uh, plus three a- actions you always have access to. Then after everybody's taken around, the um, this top tile is going to move one to the right, thereby saying goodbye to one of the core seven actions, but saying hello to another core action while still having access to the three. So the timing elements of this game are freaking brilliant. You are deciding, right, okay, I could get this. It's going to make me really good at fishing. But fishing is almost gone. Do I keep this? Um, but it also will bring in, it'll increase the size of my civilization. You know what? I think I'm going to grab this, I don't know, Aztecs or whatever, because I care more about increasing my civilization than I care about the fishing upgrade or whatever it is. It's such a simple little idea, but it is so fun, so smart, so fast playing, so satisfying. Like I said, the only thing this game needs is a new lick of paint. I want to see art on all the cards from Vincent Dutre or the Miko or Andrew Bosley or Beth Sobel or anybody, anybody, because it's a pretty spare looking game. It's pretty utilitarian in its presentation. And that makes it a little bit more abstract feeling than it otherwise might. But man, this game is fantastic. I I think if I can ever get my hands on it and play it a few more times, oh, because I didn't mention the other thing that's so brilliant, it comes with several different um, variants in the box that let you change up the, um, the the tech tree so you get different tech trees every time you play and um, you know, and let you mess with the uh, special powers that happen every time you play. So it, it has legs for days, and I really got to get myself a copy because I want to spend more time with my number one game of the month, Age of Civilization. Folks, if you're like me and you missed it and you love Civilization games that play in under a half an hour, check it out. It's freaking phenomenal. And that is it. But wait, there's one more thing I have to do, which is say thank you to all of these people zipping by right now. As you can see, I've come back into the RV uh, to escape the sun and make this big list. But while it flies by, thank you to every single one of you for helping Keeping Rada running. i got to give a special shout-out to uh, certain high-level backers. Let me go on ahead and get going in no particular order. order. Uh, Dave Salvatore, Graham Wallace, Sharon Laubach, Adrian Dahl. Steve Ercolini, Eric Z, Jerry Reese, Amy, Victory BHG, Nancy Pope, Heather Rudarian, Jimmy Schroeder Hansen, The Griff, KB, uh, Jeff Young, Chris Arnold, Evitar, ne- uh, Nicholas Elkins, Denmawa, 2030 CE, Davy Davis, Charles Hill, Lex, Cobra Misfit, Cheryl Howard, Dr. Fu, Selma Lee, Marilyn, Caitlin Albert, Stacy Lee, Jay Huber, Hans Peter Bach, Dennis NT, Jeff Glazen, um, Blake Wilson, Amber Ray, Marlon Cruz, also known as El Crosso, Aisa Samuelonis, uh, Dan Halligan, April, and Moltar. Although really, that one's going out special to you, Alina. You know who you are. Thank you so much, everybody, for supporting the show. And actually, while I'm at it, thanks to everybody who has put me and Jen up over the last few weeks as we headed down towards Mexico. I'm talking Rick and all the fine people at Funicon. I'm talking, um, you know, or Ruel Gaviola, my co-worker, uh, you know, uh, one of Jen's lifelong friends, F.O. We stayed there for a while. Uh, Tammy and family, my long-lost sister who I finally met, and um, my uh, cousin James, who I'd also never met until this trip. Uh, Drake and Nancy, am I forgetting anybody? I want to thank everyone so much. I think that's it, and I think that's the rest of them. And thank you to you folks for watching, and um, hopefully you enjoyed the show. What will happen next month? I don't know. We'll still be on the road. Uh, and if you don't want to miss it, hey, boom, you can subscribe. And then there's some other links for other things you can do on the channel. You know how these things go, right? This is not your first YouTube rodeo. Talk to everybody. See you next month. So long. Bye-bye.